cough one last time before I turn the mic on. <laughs> if only. I'll probably end up coughing again. Sorry, I'll try to mute it as best I can. How about anybody else? But I've got sinus issues. I have since I was a kid. And this 20 degree and then 60 degree and then 20 degree and then rainy, it's like I might as well just drill a couple holes in my head and probably feel better in the long run. But it is a pleasure to be here today. Uh, we're going to be back in Ephesians. If you are, were here last week or online or whatever, um, we pivoted away from Ephesians and did the infamous Christmas story, the one that's shared all the time, uh, which was great. And, and obviously, we are super excited about the birth of our Savior, but we're most excited about his birth because we know what he has come to do and what he has already done. And because of that, we can now have eternal life. Um, and that's what we spend the remainder of the year talking about as a general rule. But uh, it's wonderful to take a, a quick break from where we were uh, here towards the end of Ephesians and talk about that. Um, I, talk, I plug our small groups a lot. And I don't do that because I have some vested interest in watching them grow. But today was a wonderful small group where we talked about some of the, the finer, the very fine points of the Christmas story. Why these aspects of Christ's birth were meaningful. And why some of them uh, could be taken into something perhaps that's not healthy for the church. But what we see in, in, the, in the life of Christ and then what we see, we move into Ephesians and what we're called to do. It's very, it's, uh, you might think we plan this out like at the beginning of the year, like, okay, so we'll stop, we'll do Luke 2, and that'll transition nicely. Sadly, we don't plan that well, generally speaking. But we talk about the birth of Christ and the humility of that event, what our Savior did and the manner in which he did it. What we're going to read about and talk about today in Ephesians, it's just wonderfully aligned with this idea about what we're called to do in the manner in which we're called to do it. So if you've got your Bibles, we'll be in Ephesians 5. If not, it'll be up on the screen. Feel free to read with us here. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful to even speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, so grateful to be able to gather in your house, so grateful as we wrap up another year, um, you know, as we move around the sun or however we wanted to view that, Lord, another year to ideally serve you and grow in you simultaneously. 
This has been a very exciting year in many regards for uh, our church, uh, Lord, but more than that, we're just excited for your kingdom. And we pray that as we move into 2024, we could do that with excitement and anticipation of how you're going to move in our lives, certainly not with dread or foreboding. Um, as we just read, Lord, the time is short and the days are evil. They're not on our side in this regard, uh, but we've got work to do. So, Lord, I pray that we'll be able to do that uh, with a steadfast spirit, a contrite heart, but joy, joy that we can't even begin to, to comprehend or fully understand, Lord. Thank you so much for, for your, your word and its power and this group uh, that we can gather together and study it. It's in your sons and my pray. Amen. All right, so I called this sermon, What Do We Do? Um, sometimes when we talk about, we read passages in the Bible, they might be esoteric, maybe hard to understand, or talking about a lot of different things, and maybe hard to pull something from it that's actionable. Sometimes it's just good information, information about who God was and, and what we could understand about him. This is a very practical passage. Context is always critical in the Bible, so just because there's a passage that says to do something, why it's asking you to do it is critical, but here it's very clear. Paul's writing a letter um, and here it lists, it's a list of do's and don'ts, right? Do this, don't do this. But don't forget the first four chapters of Ephesians. The reason that Paul has this where it is, this, this is intentional. Trying to start off by doing and don'ting may inadvertently convince you that you're doing something to save yourself. What we want to do is know that Christ has done everything required. And as we walk in him, there are things and pitfalls that we should avoid. Things that false teachers might want to convince us are good for us or beneficial to us or things like that. That's sort of the, the context here. So fundamentally, as we look at this, step one, verse one of this, imitate God. It seems pretty simple. Be imitators of God, right? I, I don't think there's a lot there that's, uh, that anyone's going to raise their hand and say, well, I don't know about that. But there, believe it or not, we could. Should I walk in wrath and vengeance? God has wrath. God is, is it can be vengeful. That's his role and his right to do so. He's holy. Whatever he does in that regard is good. That's not our call. When we are called to walk in the Lord and we are called to imitate God, we do not imitate his wrath and his vengeance. If you ever wonder why, it's because we will be unable to do so. Our wrath is naturally going to be tainted by our desire. We'll tend to get heated up. We'll make mistakes. We'll pour wrath on those that don't deserve it. We'll exact vengeance when it was inappropriate. Those are things that God commands us to leave to him. Rather, what we're called to imitate from God is what Christ did while he was here. All the aspects that we want to imitate are the aspects that Christ viewed. We walk in love and sacrifice to please God. The Jews were so opposed to Christ specifically because he wasn't wrathful and vengeful. They wanted a conquering king. They wanted someone to come in here and clean house beset all their enemies, get this place sorted out. But Christ came, loved, and obviously ultimately sacrificed himself. When God calls us to imitate him, our example is Jesus. So love practically, as he describes what this is going to be. No sexual immorality, impurity, or covetousness should be suffered. Seems pretty straightforward. Now let's be clear, Paul's talking to the saints. So he's writing to believers. This is a letter to the church. And these believers should be acting differently from the world. So his expectation is not that the step one is to eradicate sexual morality, impurity, or covetousness. That's not the charge here. Don't go out there with a 
with a sword, and if you see someone engaged in this, strike them down in the name of the Lord. It's not that. He's talking to people who claim to believe. They, they are following the way. If you are, sexual immorality, impurity, and covetousness, and later on Paul actually clarifies that covetousness and idolatry are the same sort of thing, that's not something we were going to tolerate. We don't want that. That's not good. That's a don't. Likewise, filthiness, foolish talk, and crude joking be replaced with thanksgiving. And I, I like this idea because I think a lot of times in churches, and I'm as guilty as anybody, I, I like cracking jokes, and some people have said any joke's a crude joke. This isn't funny. It's a serious business we're up to. I don't disagree with any of that. But I also like joking. And I think there's a point, and I'm sure anybody here, there, there's an ancient quote. I say ancient. I mean, it's not that ancient, I guess. But I asked the senator, what's pornography? And he says, I don't know what it is, but I know it when I see it. These sorts of things are just like that. People will say, well, what is filthiness? Give me the list of things I can't say. Well, I'm not going to be able to do that. Paul doesn't do that either. But we all know we've all probably been in a situation where somebody has said something and said, hey, come on, that's too much, or that you've gone too far. That's not funny, right? We're not joking anymore. Now I'm starting to think you just really hate somebody or you weren't trying to be mean. Paul's caution here is just if we avoid that altogether, if we stop being gross and we stop trying to be filthy, stop trying to act like fools, stop trying to make dirty jokes, and instead be thankful for all the good things that we have going on, it's going to work out better for us. And so naturally, <laughs> what do we say? Well, maybe just a little sexual impurity. I could have a little, and it's probably still be okay. And uh, Paul kind of circles back on sexual immorality. A very, very stern rebuke here that every, all of those who enjoy these specific sins are not of God. This is, this, is right, this is right here. If we start in verse 3 again, sexual immorality, all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as proper among the saints. Then he pivots. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, no crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, as he circles back, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, but because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. You can't serve two masters. If you choose to pursue sexual immorality, impurity, it will dominate you. I think this is called out and it is, it is cautioned very specifically for good reason. Sexual immorality is one of those things that can run rampant very, very quickly. It's hard to control, and it's very difficult. They knew it at this time. Paul's well aware of this. And what we see here, what he, we see him talking about is avoid this. If somebody comes and tells you you can have that and Jesus, they are lying to you. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy. It doesn't mean it's going to magically disappear. If you've ever sat through testimonies of hearing people talk about a burden in their life and they came to Jesus and it was taken away from me. I, every time I hear that, I think, well, lucky for you, I guess. What a blessing. Not me. I mean, I never have had anything completely lifted away from me like that. It's something that I have to struggle with and, and pray through and repent of. But I'm not about to say then it must be okay because I'm struggling so much with it. It must be, it must be who I am. I'm just going to embrace it. Paul's saying, don't do that. You can't serve two masters. Now, when it comes to sin and repentance, that's not what he's talking about. If you stumble and fall in, in this impurity of sexual morality, repent of that. Christ forgives you of that. This is about normalized sin. When I say normalized sin, I mean sin that is his brought, it's, it's here to stay. I am a Christian who is also a, a, a rampant, accepted sinner. 
and I'm not going to even try to fix it. God won't take it away from me. As a matter of fact, I'm starting to think God made that good in me. This is not true. He is not going to tolerate it, and his wrath looms. If you wonder why Paul circles back, it's almost like he's anticipating people saying, well, you don't know what it's like for me, Paul. I mean, I'm really, it's a, it's a big part of my life, and now, you know, I ran a brothel, so it's going to take my whole life livelihood away if I give that up. Paul's saying, right, small price to pay for eternity, give that up. Why? Because we are called to keep the church of Christ. Not the church of, of Christ per se, right? But we want to keep our business to be about Jesus. We don't partner with those who are not of God. We are once them, but we're no longer. This may sound on its face like, well, that doesn't make any sense. Aren't we supposed to be helping people talk to them? Absolutely right. What Paul's talking about is a ministerial partnership. If you fold people that don't believe what you believe into a ministry that's trying to proclaim what you believe, they're probably not going to be well-equipped to do it. Matter of fact, it may be dangerous. They may start to sprinkle some things in as they're trying to think off the hip. Yeah, he probably meant uh, this. Like, oh, good. Well, I'll take that as that because you're representing the church, right? God has made us new beings to walk in the light, and we must guard our steps and keep away from darkness. Straight, simple, straightforward. We are here to reach the world for Christ, but we do not want to partner with unbelievers in an effort to reach more unbelievers. We can talk and minister to many unbelievers, but if we partner with them, there's a, a huge risk that our ministry will be badly affected by that. And Paul actually gives us a practical example here. While we're not partners, we're not standing shoulder to shoulder presenting the gospel with somebody that doesn't believe the gospel. We must engage with the lost. And what we, what we see here is Paul calling something out that is, I think, unbelievably appropriate in today's world. And that is this notion of secret sin. People inside a church that want to have two lives. People outside the church that know that someone from the church is coming by to say hello, so let's put all of our secrets in. Don't talk about that. We know what they'll say about that. Does anybody have any doubts, generally speaking, about how Christians feel about sexual immorality? I grew up in a world that was started off, I wasn't a Christian when I was born, but I knew how the church felt about that. If I were to go talk to a pastor, I'm sure I knew what they would say to me. And that is, we're against that, generally speaking. We're not for sexual immorality. Okay, got it. So if I have to talk to somebody that I know is going to stand opposed to something I really enjoy, I probably don't want to bring it up. I'm going to mask it away and put it away. What Paul's saying is that kind of behavior is, is, is kind of a double-edged sword. One, it's hard for us to talk about it and help people walk through repentance of it, but it also leaves them in a really precarious position of now having secret sin that um, can't really be redeemed because they're not going to confess it. They're keeping it to themselves. Now, this may seem a little out of place. I want to be very clear when we talk about this that I'm in no way limiting God's ability to do whatever God wants to do. He can pluck people from any sin that he chooses and expose it or never expose it, turn their heart, convict them of it, they walk away from it. God is, is, is free and clear to do that. What we see here in Paul's words is as a standard operating procedure as a church. We want folks to be able to bring up sin in their life without the fear of shame or isolation, or abandonment because of it. Now, we all know there are some sins that abandonment, if you will, separation will be forced. If I commit murder and I confess, I will be removed from my family by force and put into a facility where I will be kept until the state deems me ready to go. That 
is a, is a bummer if people are trying to minister to me during that time. We have to pray that someone inside the prison walls can do that. But we as a church ought not be throwing people out because they're struggling with sin. We should be desiring that they bring those sins up so that we can help them repent of those sins. Paul's explanation here is using the term light, which I really love. Once it's exposed, it's visible. And once it's visible, it can be redeemed. Like I said, I'm not going to say that God can't do whatever he wants to do, but this is, this is what Paul is describing. Confession of sin is needed for repentance. It's an important step. And this isn't just a Bible thing. If you ever talk to anybody that's been in, in any kind of an anonymous group or any sort of a 12-step program, one of those steps is always to admit you've got a problem. I need to admit that this is a problem. It's exactly what Paul's saying. Because somebody doesn't even believe it's a problem. They're trying to put it away. They're trying to manage it themselves. I'll keep it. I say they don't need to know. I'm going to work through this on my own. I think I can get this hashed out that nobody ever has to know. I mean, I can tell you as a sinner saved by grace, that is a real constant barrier in my mind is I don't want people to know the shame of my sin. Let me ask for forgiveness and put this away, and this time it should do the trick. And then when it comes right back, I'm confused when in reality what I see here is I need to be talking to people who I trust and having them pray with me, hold me accountable, ask me tough questions, and I give them tough answers. Not because, oh, it's okay to struggle with sin like that, but it's okay to be not okay, and let's work on this together. If the sin is exposed, it is now visible. Whatever is visible can become light. Now, that sounds like, that sounds like the sin's becoming good. Um, no, sin is never good. But God redeems sin all the time and turns it into something good. Has anybody ever talked to someone in life and said, going to prison was the best thing that ever happened to me? Getting cancer was the best thing that ever happened to me. And at first you're like, that doesn't make any sense. But when you hear them, you hear them tell their tale, what ends up happening is something that seems so awful at first because of what came about in the world around that event, their life was made better. They got to know who Christ was more. So what we see here is while sin should never have happened in the first place, and it's, it's, a, it's a very sad state of affairs in many regards, the redemption of that sin can draw us closer to Christ than we were before the sin. Now, Paul in other letters addresses this idea about, well, let's, let's just double down on sin. Oh, that repentance. We get closer and closer. Paul says, don't do that. I'm not talking about that. But if you've got sin, there is hope. And that hope is Jesus Christ. Last bullet here I want to reiterate. It's not a call to punish and humiliate. Now, there will be punishment. I want to make it clear. It's not like the churches should isolate people and keep them. No, no, no. If you do something that's a, a criminal offense and the law needs to be brought to bear, then it needs to be brought to bear. Um, we, we must pay for the consequences in the world of our sin. But the church's goal should not be to just be punitive and humiliate people away from sinning. We want changed hearts. We want Christ to take over. And when Christ is around, our desire to sin goes down over time. Maybe very slowly, but it does go down. As we immerse ourselves in the Word, we spend time with the, in the fellowship of the saints, it becomes a little bit easier every day to walk further in Christ and not fall back on the old man. Now, as Paul wraps this section up, he tells us to watch your steps carefully. Anybody ever heard that from anyone? <laughs> I, I can't tell you the number of times in life. Watch your step. Careful. Careful. Why do we say that to people? Because there's danger, right? If I was going to climb a tree, if I'm going to walk across a, like a wall, let's say like a narrow wall, 
Watch your, be careful, be careful, be careful. The implication, of course, is that I'm not careful. When I grew up, I thought my parents thought I wanted to kill myself, right? Like, be careful. Like, oh, well, what I was going to do is walk willy-nilly and try to crack my head on them. But I won't now that you yell at me to be careful. No, but we just do that. There's danger. There's danger. I, I just feel compelled to tell you that there's danger. But when it comes to eternal, eternal danger, we find ourselves all the time very quiet. Now, we all know the joke, I get it, the, where I'm walking around with a board that says turn or burn or hell looms, and I'm ringing a bell saying, the Lord is coming and this right soon, and now's the time, and, and people are oh, well, this again, right? And it ends up becoming noise because nobody knows what I really think. Do I really have a vested interest in them? It's like me walking outside and standing on the sidewalk and yelling, be careful, Watch your step. People are like, what are you talking about? What step? I'm walking on the sidewalk. Well, I just want everyone to be careful all the time. It doesn't work. What Paul's talking about here is we watch ourselves carefully. We're told to walk wisely and not unwisely. That should immediately make you think, well, what, 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 what's wise walking look like? Well, I got good news. There's a Bible filled with information. When Paul calls us to things like wisdom, he doesn't give us these specific lists all the time. It's because these, this is something that's going to have to be between us and God, the Holy Spirit working in us to interpret the Word. we got the saints here. If someone came to me and said, now listen, here's what I'm considering. I'm thinking about leaving my family, buying a boat, and just sailing around the world until I'm dead. I'd say, I don't think that's wise. Show me in the Bible where it says, don't abandon your family, buy a boat, and sail around the world. <laughs> well, I can't. It's not there. The point of a word like wise or unwise is that we are supposed to discern that, but ideally we want to discern it in a smart way, a biblical way, a holy way. Not listening to everyone in the world, not listening to unwise partners, but to listen to those that we trust, those that we know have our best interests at heart, and ideally those that we are, are, are assured are following the word, believers in Jesus. We are told, likewise, as we make our steps, and wise and unwise, why do we care about unwise steps versus wise? Because we're supposed to make good use of our time here, as it is short. It says the days are evil. I think there's a, like a, a euphemism for they're not on our side. Time opposes our effort. If we want to reach the whole world, if you want to accomplish anything, the, the inevitable growth and, and age cycle of humanity is it's going to stop us at some point. And the more wise decisions we make, the more effective our time is. If we, take, if we take five unwise steps for every wise step, well, that's a pretty bad uh, percentage of use of our time. I'd rather take five wise than one unwise. Percentage-wise, I'm taking more wise steps in the time that I'm allotted. Imagine, if you will, and I hate to break it to you, but you do, have a limited amount of steps you will take in your life. Now, I don't know the number. No one knows that number. But there's a limited amount. Let's make more of those steps wise rather than unwise. And then lastly, the kind of capstone of this is that we're told not to be foolish about the will of the Lord, but to understand it. And this comes back to wisdom. What? How could I understand the wisdom of the Lord? How could I know what the Lord's will is? Read your Bible. Read your Bible. That's it. There is no magic tome. There's no magic eight ball. You can't roll bones. You can't draw straws. You can do that, but it's not going to discern the will of the Lord. The will of the Lord in our life is something that 
has very simple fundaments, like he desires that all will come to know him, but also endless complexities about what city should I move to if a job offer comes up. You're not going to find that in the word directly, but all the reasons that we care about that as an issue in our life is here. Why am I doing this? Who is this going to affect? How is this going to help me further the kingdom? So let's break it down. Important imitation information. If it's your first Sunday here, you'll be like, man, this guy loves alliteration. I do. On this side, it's kind of like a dare for myself. I try to put some stuff up there. So let's talk about these four, these four, re- these four focuses here that we'll talk about. Imitate God by walking in love. Imitate God by walking in purity. Imitate God by walking in truth. And imitate God by walking in understanding. Walking in love. As I mentioned before, we are not called to walk in wrath or hate. There are some limited times in the Bible where it seems like Jesus gets perhaps a little maybe stern or beyond with those around him. Some Pharisees, some money changers in the temple. These are very specific moments. But Christ never sinned, so we know that there is something to be said for that. What we also don't see is that Christ does not exact the wrath of God on anybody while he's here. He doesn't go on tirades. He doesn't punish people. When questioned by the Pharisees, he puts them in their place. You want to hear the truth? I'll tell you the truth. You're a pit of vipers. I don't care for you. You don't love me or my father. You're liars and cheaters and thieves, and it makes me sick. That's what I think. (laughs) Oh, my gosh, I can't believe he said that. He walks in and he sees people taking advantage of, the, of his children by taking their money and convincing them they need to give it to them in order to worship more fully. Yes, there's going to be a time for us to be stern in our words and deeds. But what we're generally going to be doing is even in those moments, through, through love of those people, trying to show them that there's a better way. You don't need to lie and cheat You don't need to steal. There's a better life. We are called to love as Christ loved us while we hated him. That's an easy thing to forget. When we read Romans 5, 8 earlier, I don't don't have a life verse per se, but it's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. It struck me as a young man that while we were yet sinners, not like while I was back when I was getting ready to stop sinning, Christ died, I was in the midst of sin. I was yet sinning when he went to the cross for me. While someone is actively hating us, actively engaged in destroying us, if they are to be saved, Christ died for them too. This changes the game for us. We know the end of the story. Somebody that's coming after us and trying to destroy us. Maybe it's not necessarily because we're Christians. It's because we did something wrong. Own that. I'm sorry. I know what I did was wrong. I'm sorry. Well, I can't forgive you. I understand. But I wish you would. And I want you to know I am so sorry that I put you in this position. I made terrible mistake. You'd be surprised what that sort of thing does. When someone comes after you, if someone comes after you because you're a Christian, bring it on. Okay, I'll be praying for you. The game changed a lot. When we talk about the whole corpus, the, the body of the Bible, we see that after Christ died, the apostles didn't live on easy street. They were mostly killed in extraordinary circumstances. The brother of Jesus is the one that always gets to me. They wanted him to recant. He didn't even believe his brother when Jesus was alive. He's trying to talk him out of the whole ministry. Then he dies. James says, oh my gosh, it's true. 
And what does he do? He goes back to his Jewish brethren and he starts to pray for them. Turn away. Accept my brother. He was the son of God. Jesus Christ is the only way to be saved. They said, stop all this nonsense. I can't. They took him to the top of the temple. Say it's a lie or we'll throw you off the temple. It's the truth. Throws him off the temple. He's laying on the ground with broken legs. And as he's laying on the ground with broken legs, he starts praying for these people that are so mad that they kill him because he's praying for them. That's no picnic. That is an extreme amount of love. Extreme amount of love. He loved those people that were wanting to stone him even as they hated him because of the example Christ set on the cross. Why? Because this kind of love breaks hearts. This kind of love makes you look at the lost and realize that there is no hope for them but Christ. If they have not Christ, they have nothing. It's no wonder the world's upside down and backwards. As the song says, if you've ever heard it, they will know we are Christians by our love. It's a great it's a great line and a great notion. If there's anything that should set us apart, it oughtn't be by the things we hate, but it should be by the extraordinary number of people that we love. Not because uh, we, it's okay, however you are, just stay that way and there's no change required. No. This is the truth, but I am convinced that the Holy Spirit's the one that's doing the saving. So how can I hold them accountable for not making great choices if they don't have the Holy Spirit living inside them? Second, Imitate God by walking in purity. We cannot live as we please and serve the Lord, period. Now, I can hear it now. I can hear myself saying, actually, if I was serving the Lord fully, then what I would please would be the Lord, so I could technically, yeah, 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 yeah. The reality is we're never going to do that. Our desires are never going to be perfectly aligned with what the Bible would have us do. That's the reason we go back to this word and we read it and we meditate on it and we bring it up and we talk about it and we dig into it every week. There's a couple, re couple sins here in this passage that are mentioned strongly to avoid. And these specific sins, unironically, are very prevalent even in our world today. Covetousness and idolatry and sexual immorality. If you can't throw a stone outside this door without striking somebody that's in the midst of that. Living it, cherishing it, making it part of them. We use the words, uh, when I was a kid, we never used the word identity at all. Now people are taking everything and glomming it onto their identity. Well, when you start doing that, it becomes very difficult to sever something. I am my sin. Christ says, no, 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 no. You're not your sin. It, or if you want to think of it that way, I'm going to take you that's sin-ridden, I'm going to take it away, we're going to crucify that, and here's a new you without sin. That's the kind of light we're supposed to be to the world. But we can't do it if we're not pure. This doesn't mean sin-free. It doesn't mean we're not going to stumble. It doesn't mean we're not going to stumble into these covetousness and idolatry and sexual immorality kinds of sins. We will do that. But we must strive to live pure lives. We repent of those. We beg forgiveness when it's required. We have people pray for us. We study the word. We, we pray. We, we, we beg God for mercy again and again and again. Never about us. Never about our good works. Always about the work that God is doing inside of us. I love the adage that the only thing that I bring to my salvation is the sin that requires it. When you, when you grasp that fully, we understand that I need Christ. I need God in everything, everything I do. And why do we strive to be set apart for God's calling? The word holy just means to be set apart. We talk about holiness and, 
these romantic ideas like, I want what they've got, you know. I'm sure we've all experienced that. You see somebody, just, they're, 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 they've got a, a countenance and a, an attitude that it's, it's, it's peaceful and it's calming. And you're like, man, I wish I could feel that way. Maybe you'll never feel that peaceful or calm as they, but I can tell you this much. If you want to be holy outside of God, there's no hope. Third, imitate God by walking in truth. This one's easier said than done in many regards. We must be honest with each other and the lost. These calls to sin, uh, to, to sin and being rid of them and keeping, getting secret sins out, and that's, that goes all the way across the board. In the church, out of the church, we got to be honest. we got to talk about the truth. we got to understand what we're up against. The things that are, 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 are a struggle in our lives, we're not called to fight all these by ourselves. We're not called to always go into our, our room and, and, and pray and, and weep alone. We have the body of believers. We have the church. We also have the entirety of Scripture. And the whole truth of it, all the books are important. We'll talk, you'll hear us mention a lot about context. And, and the reason for that is some people will pluck passages out and use them slightly out of context. And, and through those misunderstandings, people can start to think, i got to do more. My faith is weak. I need more faith, so I'll better pray. i got to do more work to get more faith i got to do more work to be more sexual. I, I struggle with sexual impurity, so I'll just busy myself with something other than that. If you don't busy yourself with, with Christ, then you are trading sexual immorality for covetousness. You're, you're replacing one idol with another. We must not omit or change things to allow for more tolerance at the expense of sinfulness. I mean, this is a hot-button topic, and I don't want to be political about this, but when we hear about things in the Bible, talking about itching ears and things I want to hear... This is exactly what's going on all over the place. It's just far easier to capitulate to the world, say, what, what's going to be okay now? We're just not going to worry about sexual immorality at all. We'll have a few sexual immorality. We'll say rape's bad, but that's really going to be it. That way, everybody will want to hang out here because we can all just be ourselves, right? Yeah, we can all be a whole bunch of sinners. Isn't it a church for sinners? You don't take well people to a hospital. We take all these little ideas and we pervert them into something that is not what the Bible describes. We have to be truthful. I've already talked about walking in love. It starts with love. We're going to be loving to these folks. And we're going to be pure. So it's not about me being good. I struggle with sin and God's redeeming and cleansing me. It's not about me be, being okay by myself. I need God every bit as much as that. But now let me tell you the truth. You cannot have 17 wives and call yourself a Christian in good standing. That's just not going to be allowed anymore. Well, I, I love them all. And I, mean, I, I don't doubt any of that. I don't know how you do that, but anyway, if that's where you are, but I'm telling you, i got to be truthful with you, that's not okay. Oh, so you're kicking me out. Nobody said that. You're not going to talk to me ever again, right? You're going to cast me out just like everybody else. No, no, we're not going to do that. I'd like to get more coffee. I'd like to talk about this, but let's go through here. If you think it's okay, I want to know why. And when you start asking people to say, show me in the Bible where what you're saying is true, they're going to say, well, it came to me in a dream or... You know, I met with a pastor once who told me it was okay. Well, that's not going to be enough. Your pastor is not going to be able to vouch for you when it comes time to be judged. That's between you and God. And if you want to know what God thinks, that's the word. This means tough conversations in love with folks that love the world. Family members, friends, co-workers. Now, do we walk in there and say, hey, I got a list of sins here. I'm going to go down the list. I'm going to start hammering people in the hands if I find out you're doing any of these because I want better. No, that's not what we're called to do. That's not loving. 
But if somebody comes up to you and they're like, listen, I have this problem, I think you're going to, I mean, we've had, uh, you could take anybody in this room and say, have you ever come, yeah, most likely, situation where somebody says, listen, I know you go to church, but I'm struggling with something, maybe you could help me. Uh, I don't know if I can help you other than to give you this Bible, but let's talk about that. I can tell you the truth, but you can't tell the truth if you don't know the truth. That's our last point. Walking in understanding. Paul ends this passage with a call to wisdom and understanding. I love this stuff. Paul is, is, a, is, is a, he's sneaky and smart, and I, I love it. It's not coincidental, as we can't grow into what we don't know. You can't grow into what you don't know. If you want to be a, a more upstanding Christian, if you want to live more by the, the tenets of the Bible, then you've got to know the tenets of the Bible. I've had people complain to us, man, this, this church feels like all we do is study the Bible. Correct. <laughs> That's exactly what we're going to do. I'm not going to go down a list of like, here's some cool life tips from Pastor Chris. Who cares? Who cares? Pastor Chris is going to be dead and gone in 100 years. This Bible will remain for eternity. This is the Word of God. This is important. We must learn the good news of the Word to tell others. The good news of the Word is not screaming Leviticus into people's faces. It's not the good news. Now, that can be used to teach. Don't get me wrong. Nothing in the Bible, no, no word comes back void. But yelling law at sinners is not good news. Christ didn't do that. Christ talked to people about the truth of the kingdom. He, he began to explain this idea of forgiveness and a salvation that's not of you in a way people didn't understand it. It scared the Jews so much because they had an entire framework built of money and sacrifice and a machine, a business around salvation, or at least forgiveness. Now, Christ coming to the saying, it's, it's, all about, it's all about seeds, and it's faith, and it's growing, and it's God, and not you. And they're like, whoa, 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 not us, but we run the show here. Christ's like, well, I, I, you do run the show here, but my Father runs the show there. Where everyone's going to be forever, you're not going to be in charge there. We must learn, we must know the truth of God to live it out day to day, period. And I'll stand up here as the first one to tell you, without as someone that, that lacked a lot of Bible knowledge and went where the, the, the river of faith, church life, if you will, steered me for a long time, it becomes very easy to say, hey, that's wrong. Why? Well, I heard it in church. Hey, that's a great thing you're doing. Why? I heard it in church. I mean, I don't know about y'all, but I've heard some stuff in church that I wouldn't repeat outside of church. Just because I heard it in church doesn't mean it's right or wrong. It's the Bible that matters. So when Paul calls us to be wise and, and with understanding, it's Paul charging us to learn our stuff. Know the truth. Well, if you just said this before, but if you go talk to people in the Secret Service about how do you detect counterfeit bills, it's not by handling counterfeit bills. It's about spending tons of time with real money. They learn the feel of paper that's new and paper that's 10 years old. They see the way it crinkles. They know how the ink fades. They know what happens when you draw it across the table. They know how well it folds and doesn't. They know the real money so well that when you hand them a fake bill, they're like, this is fake. What well, gave it away? There's a thousand things wrong with it because I know real money. People that don't know either would be like, gosh, I can't tell. Point it out to me. Okay, I can show you. But if you want to be able to detect it, you've got to know the real. So what do we do? Mm. 
almost deleted this slide, but I left it in. Well, we talk a lot about learning and growing. Goodness gracious. What about doing something? Well, well, we do. We talk about learning and growing. Why? Because I really don't want anybody doing anything to play act. I did this for a very long time. I still struggle with it today. It's so easy to act like a church person. Go around, take all the church people you know, the ones you like, the ones that are well-respected, look at the things they say and do, and copy them. You'll be able to get by that probably your whole life. That is, no, that is no example that you are saved or anything. What we do is not as important as what, how we learn and grow. So we need to be studying. It's our primary reason for this gathering corporate worship. We do not gather here to act like Christians. Everybody, how are we looking today? Very saved, excellent work. Let's keep that up this next week. No, we are here to learn the word. Learn about God. Learn about Christ and the Holy Spirit. What they have done, are doing, and will do. We can't ever teach others or defend our faith if we don't know the truth. And the worst part is if, if we don't know the truth and we are just not learning and growing and just kind of going through the motions and play acting, if we ever elevate ourselves or get elevated to a position of teaching or explain to others what's going on, we may teach falsely what we think we know or, heaven forbid, what we've experienced. And experience as some sort of divine right is a, a very, very slippery slope. There are people that had unbelievable experiences. Paul had an unbelievable experience. He literally just got knocked down and blinded by Christ, and that was it. He was changed, and okay, we're never coming back. But you didn't hear Paul endlessly going on and on about that sort of thing. The truth of, the, of Scripture is well beyond our experience. That's way too isolating. The Word is what's important. And we talk about this, the other answer is it's so complicated. I prefer to think of the Bible as simple with layers of unfathomable complexity. The good news, the stuff we really care about, to talk to somebody that has no idea who Jesus is, maybe never cracked open a Bible in their life, is pretty straightforward. It's relatively simple. The core messages for those who don't know Christ are very simple. But for believers, the depth of knowledge and the immense mystery of God come through study. I'm wowed. I am floored. I'm awestruck. I'm undone when I think and ponder and study what God has done and is doing in his character. It's no wonder that in Isaiah we see him say, I was undone. He just collapses. He can't even speak until his lips are seared and purified. It's too much. He is, God is too holy. Much like math. One plus one equals two is simple. But what is one? It's very tricky. That goes for everything. Math is a simple one for my brain. What's one mean? Huh? How much time do you got? So how simple can it be? It's not that simple. He's making it sound so easy. It's not so easy. <clears throat> Mankind is corrupted by sin and is dead and enslaved to it. God the Father sent his son Jesus to be born as a baby and live as a man. We just celebrated that birth last week. Jesus lived a perfect life with no sin ever committed, despite being tempted in every way. Jesus then willingly died on a cross, bearing the full wrath of God. His death then paid the debt for all of those that Jesus came to save. After three days, Jesus was resurrected and now sits alive at the right hand of the Father. For those who believe, the Holy Spirit is given as a constant companion. And some of you are thinking, well, there's more to it than that. Amen. But if you ever wanted to have 
six, seven bullets you could say to somebody that says, tell me why you bother. There's some. Take those. And then crack the Bible open and you can start to unfold through the Gospels where these bullets came from and why they're important, why it's meaningful. Why did he have to die? Great question. Come to Bible study. I don't understand. How could he have been a sinless life? I heard when he was a baby, he never cried. Oh, that's a, I've heard that too. Come to Bible study. Let's talk about that stuff. Let's talk about this. Let's talk about Jesus, the truth of Jesus. And watch how it changes lives. So what about us? If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, we want to talk. <laughs> if you're hearing this thinking, maybe, maybe. If you're online, you're thinking, I don't know. I could, that sounds reasonable, but I don't know if I buy it yet. Hit us up on Facebook or something. We want to talk. If you're a believer, but you've not been growing, we want to talk. If you want to walk more in love with us here at CHBC, we want to talk. CHBC, Calvary Heights Baptist Church, just to be clear what that stands for. And if you are smack dab in the will of God, be thankful and pray for God to use you. Be blessed in that. If things are really going the way they ought to be going and you're opening up your word, don't beat yourself up. Oh, I always could be doing more. It's not about that. This isn't designed to be something to, to, to castigate and make us feel less than. It's designed to be a call that we can further ourselves with our God. Let's pray. Lord, I'm so thankful for passages <coughs> that have a, have a clear message, but hopefully, Lord, inspire us to, to fill even a very clear message in, to the, in with other details. To take extra time to, to study and pray and ask questions and learn the word so that our lives can be changed and that we can bring that same powerful word to others so that their lives can be changed, Lord. That's our fundamental reason for being here. It's not to gather together and feel good, gather together and high-five that, you know, we made it and, and we've been elect or whatever. It's, it's to know that we are charged with a very important task, and that is to share the good news of your son of what he did with the entire world. It's no small task, but lucky for us, you are no small God. Thank you, Lord, for this time together. It's in your sons, I pray. Amen.